All right, please take your Bibles this evening and turn to Luke 21. Take heed to yourselves. Covering a, a good amount of ground today. Um, took last week as a hiatus. Evangelist Stevens was here. Today we're covering uh, quite a bit of Luke. We're going to try to get uh, through the rest of the chapter today in Luke 21. Very interesting overlap between this morning's message and this evening's message. This morning we began uh, a few parts of a message called The Big Picture, where we were considering end times events, uh, starting with the vision of Daniel and of Nebuchadnezzar of um, the kingdoms of this earth. Next week we're going to look at how Israel fits into those kingdoms through the 70 weeks and then focusing in at the end on the tribulation period. And there is going to be some overlap tonight with that. We're going to cover tonight through Jesus' teaching in Luke 24 primarily the, the, the last little bit of the tribulation period in part. We're not going to cover it in depth. Uh, we don't need to here. Jesus doesn't teach that here, um, nor is that his object. The, the object of Jesus' teaching is not to teach on uh, end times events, but to say uh, that they are coming and to give some practical applications in regarding them. So uh, we, are, we are staying thematically close uh, just due to how things overlap, which is kind of neat. Uh, I hope it's not a little bit of an overload for you. Um, my, my old... Um, uh, one of my well, many people say repetition is the key to learning, right? I had a a professor in college uh, who identified this to a T. Uh, he would teach something and then he'd quiz on something and then he'd quiz on it again and then he'd test on it. And by the time you got to the test, if you were paying attention, the tests were easy because it was all questions that you'd already had because you'd been tested on it and quizzed on it several times already. And so repetition can really be a help to us. And we're going to get a little of that over this week, next week, a little bit of overlap with what we said this morning and what we're going to say next Sunday morning. Uh, because of that, however, I'm also going to assume a few things if you've not, uh, and not assume some things. If you've not been here for the morning series, um, I'll certainly cover what needs to be. If you've been here uh, for the morning series, then you're going to probably have a little bit more overlap obviously, and have heard some things twice. There's a lot to get uh, said this evening, though, so we're just going to dig right in. We are in Luke 21, and we'll begin in verse 5. The Bible tells us this. And some spake of the temple, how it was adorned with goodly stones and gifts. He said, As for these things which ye behold, the days will come in the which there shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. We're uh, speaking of Jesus here, right? Remember last time we were together, Jesus was overlooking the treasury and there were many people heaping in multiple gifts and then a widow came and put in her two mites and Jesus remarked that that woman had given more than all others because she gave of her whole living, right? And we talked about the principles of giving and how to draw those principles out in our own lives. Well, Jesus is still in Jerusalem in the days leading up to his death. We're, we've been here for a little while now. We'll be here for a little while longer. These eight days, just uh, uh, including Jesus's, the day of Jesus' um, crucifixion, resurrection, the last eight days um, before um, his resurrection, he's been spending much time in the temple and his disciples used one of these occasions to kind of brag on the beauty of the temple a little bit. In Luke, we see them speaking of how it was adorned with goodly stones and gifts. Gifts from Herod that would be the king who commissioned the temple to be built. It would be his wealth and the wealth of the Roman Empire that was poured into this temple. The temple, however, was a point of pride for the nation in much the same way at various times in Christianity and in Christian history, uh, various maybe temples and churches would have been large points of pride as uh, you would see uh, beautiful, beautiful um, pillars and, and uh, stone masonry and artwork and those sorts of things. We have at times seen these monuments as uh, testaments to God's glory and His greatness, rightful dis displays of his worth to the extent to which we have put them out there to honor him. And in much the same way, the Jews were, were deeply proud of the temple that had been built, deeply proud of the complex. It was beautiful, it was grand, and they were very pleased with it. 
And yet in all of this, we understand that that temple, like anything else, like churches and even to whatever degree we adorn our temples for a Sunday, maybe dress up a little bit more. It's all just stuff, right? These are all just things. They're very temporal. They're not eternal. Earthly temporal things which are only as good as the heart of love which is behind them. And this reality is reflected in Jesus' response to his disciples. In response to their rejoicing over the temple, Jesus says that there's coming a day when not one stone will be left upon another of that temple complex. That every last stone in the temple would be thrown down. Probably not quite the response the disciples were expecting when they were bragging on the temple. But it elicited from them more questions. It brought more questions to mind. The the disciples are, oh Jesus, look at the grandeur of the temple. Look at these beautiful stones. And Jesus says, yep, uh, those stones are all going to be thrown one off another one day. And they started thinking, hmm, what's Jesus talking about? And so we read in verse 7. And they asked him, saying, Master, but when shall these things be? And what sign will there be when these things shall come to pass? These things you speak of, Master, when shall they be? What are the signs that these things you speak of shall come to pass? Now, I'd like us to go to Matthew In the Matthew passage, the synoptic, just briefly, the parallel passage to this, for more fullness to the question at hand. In Luke, it would seem the context is exclusively the destruction of the temple. Jesus, you just said that the temple would be destroyed. What what are the signs that this temple will be destroyed? But when we get to Matthew, we find that there's a far uh, uh, more or longer reaching, farther reaching concept to their question. In uh, Matthew chapter 24, verse 3, the Bible says, And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming and the end of the world? So when shall these things be? That's the same question we see in Luke. If you were to look at Matthew 24, verses 1 and 2, a similar idea. They're bragging about the temple. Jesus says these, the temple will be thrown down. And there's that same idea. But then they also ask, as if this is later on the Mount of Olives, of course, that they're asking this, according to Matthew. And, and they ask him, and what will also be the signs of the end of the world? What will be the signs of thy coming? And so we see a heightened concept there, the signs of the temple being destroyed and the signs of thy coming. And in this, we have a definite context change from speaking about the signs of the temple's destruction to these greater concepts of the last days. Now, going back to Luke, immediately we might, upon hearing about the signs of the end of the world, experience a natural conflict with this idea because of Jesus' regular teaching upon the eminence of Jesus Christ, the idea that he could come at any moment. And the idea of signs of his coming clashes pretty strongly with imminence, right? If he could come at any moment, but if there are signs that have to take place, How do those merge together? Indeed, it was in Luke 12 that we saw this preaching about them being busy doing because the Lord would come. He described it as a thief in the night, not knowing when the master would arrive, but he would come at a time when they knew not, when they expected not. And so we see this natural tension between the Lord's imminent return and the signs of his coming. Well, this is solved in a couple of different ways. We do see in Revelation, Jesus say, Behold, I come as a thief. And so even though in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, we're seeing signs and wonders taking place, yet Jesus says there is still a, a, an unexpected heir to the moment of his coming. Indeed, Jesus tells us that no man knows the time nor the hour of his sure return, even if we can see general signs of his coming, the, the, the day and the hour are unknown. Of course, in uh, our circles, we also believe in what we call a pre-tribulation rapture, right? The idea that the Lord will rapture the church out before the tribulation, and because of that, there's an imminency to the church uh, on top of the promises to the Jews that he would come as a thief, the promises uh, in, in revelation of such. And so we we can see through these various levels of interpretation ways that we can kind of solve this idea of imminency when we compare it to the signs 
of his coming. Now remember, as we look through Luke, we're going to see signs in two different contexts. First, we're going to see signs of the temple being destroyed. That was the first part of their question. Then secondly, we're going to see signs of his second coming proper. And as we do that, we're going to skip from the years just after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection to the final three and a half years of the tribulation. Now, in the Jews' mind, they may not have actually been separated. The destruction of the temple and the coming of Jesus Christ, they might have linked as contiguous events. And to that end, we're going to see several promises of Jesus that will be dual fulfilled. They will be fulfilled on the short term, and then they will be heightened and fulfilled greater on the long term. If you, don't, if you weren't here for our, our morning services on dual fulfillment, I encourage you to go back and look at those prophetic dual fulfillment. I'm not going to cover that again tonight. So Jesus' disciples are asking for insight into the time and the signs of his coming. And this is going to be broken up into two general time segments, as I said, corresponding to the 70 weeks that Daniel sees in Daniel 9. I'm preaching on those 70 weeks next week and Sunday morning. So again, I'm not going to steal all of my thunder. Next week, I'm going to walk you through the text. I'm going to substantiate it all. Tonight, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to assume upon your knowledge. I'm not going to defend everything that I'm saying as much. But I want to give you the short version of the 70 weeks that God shows to Daniel, the 70 weeks of Israel and Israel's, uh, God's final plan with Israel. God tells us in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 26, that there would be 70 weeks left in the plan of God for Israel before he finishes the work that he had begun in them. We find as we compare Scripture with Scripture, again, I'm not substantiating any of this this evening, but we find as we compare Scripture with Scripture that those 70 weeks are actually representative of 70 sets of seven. And in the Hebrew language, this is not unusual. The idea of a week is actually just a set of seven. And typically speaking, you would see that used to talk about a set of seven days, but it doesn't have to be seven days. And in this case, the 70 weeks are 70 sets of seven years. 70 times 7 is 490, a 490-year span of time for God's dealings with Israel. I hope that made sense. So the text tells us in Daniel chapter 9 that from the command to rebuild Jerusalem unto the coming of Messiah the Prince would be first seven weeks and then another 62 weeks. Seven weeks would be, as you see up there, 49 years. I hope you can, uh, hope it's somewhat clear. Seven weeks, 49 years, then 62 weeks, 434 years. Combining those together, 69 weeks, 483 years of history between when the command to rebuild Jerusalem would take place and the coming of Messiah, the Prince. We see this fulfilled literally. We see this fulfilled sequentially. Somewhere around 445 B.C., Artaxerxes I um, allows, commands Jerusalem to be rebuilt. If we fast forward, for, uh, um, fast forward 483 years, not necessarily 365-day years, but in prophecy, a year is only 360 days. So if we fast forward 483 years at 360 days per year, which is a lunar calendar idea, we come to somewhere around 32 AD, somewhere around when Jesus is perhaps cut off, uh, certainly not when he came. Um, there are various debates as to, based upon the fluctuation here, is it, was it his triumphal entry that was in, in view? Was it his death that was in view? Um, but one way or another, we have 483 years there, contiguous, until Messiah the Prince. And then the Bible says that after the 69th week, 483 years, Messiah would be cut off. Messiah would be killed. We see that. After this, historically speaking, we see the temple destroyed in 70 AD. After Jesus' resurrection, we see Pentecost, the church begins, and there is this gap of time that we call the church age. During this church age, after Messiah is cut off, 
we do not see the fulfillment of the final week of Daniel 9. The final week of Daniel 9 speaks of one called Antichrist who will rise up, who will make a league with Israel, who will uh, cause that, that um, league with Israel to be cut off in the halfway through the week. We compare this with other prophecies in Daniel, with Revelation, with Ezekiel, and we find that Daniel is seeing the tribulation week. So the first 483 weeks of this 490 total weeks has been fulfilled literally. But then after Messiah is cut off, there has been a period of time where Israel has been put on pause and God is working in the Gentile world. God is working through the church. But we'll see him pick up his program again in the 70th week after the church age, the time that we would call the tribulation. So where are we? As, as Jesus is speaking in Luke 21, we're here. Not us today, but Jesus. Jesus was here right before his death, right? He's about to be cut off. We are just days now in Luke 21 from Jesus' death. Messiah is to be cut off. Jesus said the temple will be destroyed. The disciples ask, when will that take place? Jesus is going to talk about when that takes place and the signs of its coming. And then, as we continue through the prophecy, Jesus is going to begin speaking of signs and wonders of the abomination of desolation, things that take place according to Daniel 9 and 10 in the last half of the 70th week. So as they ask these two questions, what is the sign of the temple being destroyed and what is the sign of thy coming? That's exactly what Jesus is going to give them. First, the signs of the, uh, the, uh, of the coming up of the temple being destroyed. Then, he'll go roll right into the signs of his coming. And we're going to see the point in the text where we see this hard break, where it switches from the signs of the temple being destroyed to the signs of his sure coming. Now the waters get muddied a little bit if we go to the Matthew passage. And I'll show you why in a little bit. And this is where this dual fulfillment idea uh, comes in, most likely. So Jesus will skip the entire church age in this prophecy event, to the events that will take place in the final three and a half years of the tribulation, known as the time of Jacob's trouble. This will make more sense to you if you were, were here for what I taught a few weeks ago in our morning message on interpreting prophecy. So if you were here for that or if you've seen those online or heard those online, uh, that will be a benefit to you this evening. If not, you'll still be able to follow. I just, all the links won't be connected. Verse 8, And he said, Jesus speaking, Take heed that ye be not deceived. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ. And the time draweth near. Go ye not therefore after them. Jesus says the first sign is that you'll see many saying that they are the Christ. Many false Christs. In the days following Jesus' death, this is uh, a, actually a, quite a well-recorded fact, historically speaking, through Josephus. We know in Acts 21, verse 38, a man named Theudas, who was a revolutionary, and he claimed to be Messiah. There was a man named Simon Magus who claimed to be Messiah. There was also a rival named Dositheus, and he had a disciple named Menander who also claimed Messianic authority. In this time after Jesus' death and resurrection, but before the temple was destroyed, there were several men that rose up claiming to be Messiah in history. Thus the prophecy was brought about. Jesus gave a second sign in verse 9. But when ye shall hear of wars and commotions, be not terrified, for these things must first come to pass, but the end is not by and by. Then said he unto them, Nation shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. Great earthquakes shall be in diverse places, famines, pestilence, fearful sights. Great signs shall there be from heaven." We would be tempted immediately to fall to, for, to see this as falling upon the end times. But it's not necessarily so. We certainly see a dual prophecy here, as no doubt before the end times there will be great wonders as well. But it's interesting 
The historians in the days, in those days, the days after Jesus' death and around that time, Josephus in, in, as a Jewish historian and Tacitus, the Roman historian, spoke of great catastrophes following the crucifixion. Now remember, uh, the two markers that we're between right now is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. This destruction was the end of a very difficult, tumultuous time in Israel, filled with sedition and rebellion. Israel, there were constantly rebellions being put down as zealots in Israel were attempting to overthrow the Roman Empire. There were, was this idea of wars and rumors of wars. Of, there, there, there was a time of war among the nations. The Roman historian Tacitus, in the years following Jesus' death, wrote this. That same year, twelve famous cities of Asia fell by an earthquake in the night, so that the destruction was all the more unforeseen and fearful. Nor were there means, the means of escape usual in such a disaster by rushing out into the open country, for there were people swallowed up by the yawning earth. Vast mountains, it is said, collapsed. What has been level ground seemed to be raised aloft, and fires blazed out amid the ruin. The calamity fell most fatally on the inhabitants of Sardis, and it attracted, uh, attracted to them the largest share of sympathy. This was in the days following the resurrection. Before the temple, we see that there was an earthquake so great in the middle of the night that 12 cities just were toppled. They were destroyed. And he says, so great was this earthquake that the earth was actually splitting so that even if you felt as though you would run away from these buildings as they were following, falling, many people literally got engulfed by the earth as they sought to flee. Jesus says, great earthquakes, calamities, wars, rumors of wars, these things will surely come to pass. Natural disasters. Jesus has given three general signs. Each of them has been fulfilled in the years between Jesus' death and the destruction of Jerusalem. We continue in verses 12 and 13. But before all these, they shall lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and into prisons, being brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake, and it shall turn to you for a testimony. So Jesus then backs up. He says, before all of these natural disasters, those are signs that come close, but before that, you're going to be persecuted. They're going to drag you before the synagogues. The Jews will persecute their fellow Jews who have converted to Jesus Christ and to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, the, we, we, of course, read of this amply, right, in the book of Acts. We read of these uh, persecutions, tribunals, things that we call today kangaroo courts. That's a, a, a court, an assembly, or a proceeding that does not follow its own rules in order to, for unjust sentences to be done. But notice what Jesus says at the end as an encouragement to those who are listening to Him. He says that these events will turn from mere persecution to a testimony. In the words of Tertullian, the blood of the martyrs became the seed of the church. To this end, Jesus gave some hope and joy in the moments of sad reflection. He says unto them, Settle it therefore in your hearts not to meditate before what you shall answer when they draw you before these tribunals. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries shall not be able to gainsay nor resist. God promised to fill their mouths with wisdom these adversaries would not have the capacity to rebut them, to withstand the testimony of their words. How does one scorn the testimony of the virtuous? It is only as the virtuous stoop to the level of their adversaries. How does one resist that which is true? It is only as hypocrisy of action fills our lives that our adversaries have something to grab hold on. So Jesus tells them, trust, be faithful, and in doing so, no one will be able to gainsay nor resist as you speak the truth. Don't waste time thinking about what you're going to say, for God's Spirit will fill you, and I will tell you what you need to know on the hour that you need it. We see this again throughout the Scriptures, particularly in the life of Stephen, when he is martyred. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, 
Paul several times in his ministry. Church history, we can read of martyrs proclaiming the gospel as they are sent to their death. Jesus then comes back to warnings in verse 16 to 19. And ye shall be betrayed both by parents and brethren and kinsfolk and friends. And some of you shall they cause to be put to death. And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. But there shall not a hair of your heads perish. In patience possess ye your souls. Jesus warns them that many would be put to death, that they'd be betrayed by those they love, hated of all men. But, Jesus says, not a hair of your head shall perish. This would appear to be a contradiction. How can he say that they would be sent to death, but that not a hair of their head would perish? The allusion might be to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Daniel when they're thrown into the fiery furnace, that kind of an idea. Divine protection. But certainly here, it's speaking of a spiritual concept that as they possess their souls in patience, even unto death, that the Lord would preserve them unto the day of redemption. The final sign that Jesus gives here in regard to Israel's immediate future we find in verses 20 to 24. And we, ye shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies. Then know that the desolation thereof is nigh. Then let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains. And let them which are in the midst of it depart out. And let not them that are in the countries enter therein too. For these be the days of vengeance that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe unto them that are with child and to them that give suck in those days, for there shall be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. And they shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. The final promise that we see here in Luke is that the city of Jerusalem would be uh, surrounded, besieged, and at that time, Jesus says, flee. He calls it a day of vengeance. He says, woe unto them that are with child or nursing because these things will slow them down. Many will fall by the sword. And then notice this. This is very important. That they would be led captive of all nations. This is very important that we, we identify this phrase here. And then he says the Gentiles would tread down the city of Jerusalem until the time of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Several things that we need to say here about this. First, we see a noticeable departure between the prophecy and the record of Matthew 24 in regard to Jesus' language here and Luke 21. Luke 21, it seems quite clear to this point that Jesus is speaking of the destruction of the temple that we know in history from 70 AD, the destruction of the temple by the hand of Rome. But notice how Jesus says these things in Matthew 24. I'm going to skip around a little bit. Verses 15 and 16, Jesus says, When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand, then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Verse 19, And woe unto them that are with child, and to them which give suck in those days. Verse 21, For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not seen, uh, since the beginning of the world to this time no nor ever shall be. Now Matthew 24 speaks of this warning in regard to the abomination of desolations, desolation. Rather than um, Jesus speaking of the city being surrounded and them being taken into captivity, in Matthew 24 the mark of their fleeing is supposed to be the time when they see the abomination of desolation standing in the temple. Again, we're not going to substantiate it all this evening, but when we compare Scripture with Scripture, what we find is that halfway through the tribulation period, Antichrist is going to breach his covenant that he has with Israel. He is going to place himself uh, as God in the temple and Israel is going to realize this guy is not their friend and that is going to begin a time of deep persecution of the Jews such as they have never seen before. It does not speak of the captivity. It does not speak of the surrounding of the city. We see uh, definitively different signs here. What is going on? 
Well, we know that the events of Matthew 24 simply cannot fit into the events of 70 AD. There was no abomination of desolation. Uh, there, there was no beginning of great tribulation such as the world has ever seen. None of that happened. So we know that Jesus is not speaking of these things in Matthew 24. Now we can try to shoehorn some of those things in. As a matter of fact, we could quite easily take Luke 21 and stick it in here and say, okay, well, before the abomination of desolation, the Jews are, the city is going to be surrounded and then, uh, and then they're going to be sent into captivity. But we don't see anywhere else in Scripture the idea that the last three and a half years of the tribulation are years of captivity for the Jews. We see them as years of destruction for them. And this is why I believe that we have a little bit of a unique perspective going on here. It seems as though, though certainly this is the same conversation with his disciples, Matthew recorded it in a different way than Luke. And they recorded it in the ways they recorded it, Luke giving more of the temporal signs and Matthew giving more of the long-term signs. It's sort of a dual prophecy idea, a dual fulfillment idea that we're seeing here. If we read the Matthew passage, we see the uh, deeper signs of the end times, the abomination of desolation. Would not surprise us because Matthew is written to the Jews. Luke gives more of, of the idea of the more immediate chronological coming of the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Would not surprise us. Luke is writing to a Roman official. So all of the merging, how does it all fit together? Good question. It's certainly safe to say that we are at least reading foreshadowing of the end times. But I believe in Luke 21, we're also reading more specifically of foreshadowing for the temple destruction in 70 AD first. And then we'll see a hard switch to the end times. And we're seeing that coming up in just a moment. So we're here in verses 20 to 24. And he says that these things will take place until the time of the Gentiles be fulfilled. The time of the Gentiles is the time in which we live now. It began in 586 B.C. when Babylon overthrew Jerusalem. And it will end at the end of uh, the... the Tribulate or the end of the church age and then just slightly into the tribulation, maybe that three and a half year mark. Romans 11.25, Paul says, For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. We see this time, this period of Gentiles, where the Gentiles are the ones through whom God is working and acting. Uh, we, this period of the Gentiles um, leading up to the church and then through the church until the time that the church is taken out and then God begins to judge the Gentile world through the tribulation. And this is the prophetic heartbreak that we see in Luke 21. He talks about the time of the Gentiles being fulfilled. And at the end of that, there's a, a transition here to things that have not yet taken place. We also see this hard break in Revelation 11. This point, presumably around the midpoint of the tribulation. The Bible says, And there was given me a reed, Revelation 11, verses 1 and 2, like unto a rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise, and measure the temple of God and the altar, and them that worship therein. But the court, which is without the temple, leave out, and measure it not, for it is given unto the Gentiles. And the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. So it, we would believe that the time of the Gentiles will end forty-two months, or three and a half years, into the tribulation period. Are you with me? <laughs> Lots of numbers tonight. Um, wait till next Sunday morning. Uh, so as we consider these words in Luke 21, it would seem as though this is the hard break when he says the time of the Gentiles will be fulfilled. Now we're going to see a few verses that are going to lead us into the second part of the tribulation. So in Luke 21, verses 5 through 24, I believe in Luke, we're seeing primarily those Years leading up to 70 A.D. when the temple's destroyed. And then when we get to Luke 21, verses 25 through 28, now Jesus is describing elements of the last three and a half years of the tribulation. Again, can there be some overlap there? Absolutely. Is this time of uh, leading up to the temple being destroyed, is it foreshadowing a dual fulfillment idea leading up to the second coming? Yes. Most likely. 
But I believe we see that hard break pretty clearly here in Luke 21, much more clearly than we would see certainly in the Matthew passage. So we continue in verses 25 and 28. And the Bible says this, Jesus says, There shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars and upon the earth distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth, for the powers of heaven shall be shaken and then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And when these things begin to come to pass, then look up and lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. Jesus speaks of the signs and the wonders in the heavens, nations in distress and perplexity, seas and waves roaring. Consider Jesus' words there when compared to Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 through 17. And I beheld... When he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood, and the stars of heaven fell into the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs when she is shaken of a mighty wind. And the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth, and the great men and rich men, and the chief captains and the mighty men, and every bondman and every freeman hid themselves in dens and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb for the great day of his wrath has come and who shall be able to stand? That sounds quite a bit like what Jesus described in verses 25 through 28, doesn't it? Fear wonders in the heavens looking unto the day of his sure return. Jesus says it is at this time Look up. Look to the skies because your redemption draws nigh. Look to the skies because the Son of Man will return again. The end of that tribulation period, at the end of those seven years, at the end of Daniel's 70th week from Daniel 9. Now we've mentioned many times in our series, particularly in the morning, that the purpose of prophecy is not to tell the future. The purpose of prophecy is to teach us about God. In fact, Revelation itself says that the Spirit of Jesus Christ is the Spirit of prophecy. God isn't telling us the future so that we can know the future. God is telling us the future to inform us about how we should live in the present. If everything God says shall come to pass, and by the way, everything in verses 5 through 24, we would understand literally came to pass. The temple is destroyed. It was pulled down brick by brick. Then we should expect verses 25 to 28 to come to pass. Then we should expect Matthew 24 to come to pass. It's coming. If this is the case, what manner of men ought we to be? And this is where Jesus is going with this. I gave you a lot of information tonight. Let's, get, let's follow Jesus into his application. Verses 29 to 36. And he spake to them a parable. Have you, have you gained a, a renewed appreciation for the parables since we've been studying in Luke? They, they're just, they've been a blessing. He spake to them a parable. Behold the fig tree and all the trees. When they now shoot forth, ye see and know of your own selves that summer is now nigh at hand. So likewise ye, when ye see these things come to pass... Know ye that the kingdom of God is nigh at hand. Verily, I say unto you, this generation shall not pass away till all be fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. And take heed to yourselves, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness and cares of this life. And so that day come upon you unawares, for as a snare shall it come upon all them that dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch ye therefore, and pray always, that ye may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass, and to stand before the Son of God. Son of man, excuse me. We see this parable. 
He says it's a parable of the fig tree, but not just the fig tree. He says it's all the trees. He probably spoke of the fig tree. The Bible says he was on the Mount of Olives. As we considered a few weeks ago, there was likely a fig orchard nearby the Mount of Olives as well, based upon the name of of one of the cities that they passed through. So maybe he pointed to a fig tree because it was nearby. He said, consider the fig tree, but all the trees. When you see the shoots, when you see the buds, when you see the new growth, what do you know? You know that summer's coming. You know that summer's coming. You begin to see all that new growth and the trees start to turn green and they're getting leaves and you go, oh, summer's coming. It's, gonna, it's getting warm, right? And you're excited because it's the change of a season and it's getting warm and all of the things that that means for, for, for us. You can see the signs of the times. And through those signs, you discern the times and you know you need to act. Now, for us, this is more... Um, this is more potent in the fall, right? There may not be all that many things that when you see the, the, the trees begin to bud, uh, you need to do. But when you see the, 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 che- the, che- the, cheese, the trees begin to change in the fall, and you feel that first nip of cold air, and you start thinking, okay, it's time to begin winterizing, Right? It's time to start thinking towards some things. Uh, summer, if it catches you off guard, maybe you, know, maybe you didn't get things planted, you wanted to get planted and whatnot. But winter, if it catches you off guard, can cause some real problems around this, this part of the country, right? So when you see these things come to pass, you know that something is nigh and it compels you to act, right? It compels you to do something. The leaves are changing. It's getting cold. I feel it. Let's do something. Let's get the house ready for winter. Let's get things done before it gets too cold, before things start to freeze, before pipes freeze, all those sorts of things. Jesus says it's the same with us. As we see signs come to pass, it's a reminder that that time is short. Jesus tells them this generation shall not pass away till all be fulfilled. That's been a very controversial, confusing statement. Some believe it just means that that generation would not pass away until the temple is destroyed, which is true. There would be some that lived to see the temple destroyed that were there that day. I do not believe that that's the case, and the reason why is because that's not everything. Jesus said this generation would not pass away until all be fulfilled. And indeed, all would, I would think, include the prophecies of and times. So what I believe is being said here is when he says this generation, he's speaking of the generation that would see the signs of the Son of Man. When you see the signs coming, when you see the great disasters, when you see the abomination of desolation, when you see these things, that generation will not pass until all things be fulfilled. And linguistically, this could mean anything. It, 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 the, the antecedent to that pronoun could be Several things. The nearest antecedent is the signs of Christ's coming. The second coming. So I don't believe that that's actually a problem. As a matter of fact, again, we could see a dual fulfillment here. Jesus could be saying, this immediate generation will not pass away until the temple is destroyed, and that generation that sees the signs will not pass away until the Son of Man comes. So we could see both of them being valid if we wanted to read it that way. Don't let that throw you off, though. Many people use that verse to say, see, this is why, and then they go into their craziness about how revelation has already happened and, and 70 AD was the time when the Lord came and all of these kind of crazy things because of, of things like this. This generation shall not pass away, right? We don't, linguistically, it does not demand that that means that generation. It could mean the generation that will see the signs. This generation, the generation I've been speaking of, Right? That's just as valid. So let's not let ourselves get confused or caught up by that. Then Jesus gives lessons. Take heed to yourselves, Jesus says, lest your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting. That word actually describes the idea of having eaten or having drunk too much. The, that, that horrible feeling when you've eaten too much. You know, there's a point where you eat a lot and you feel okay. And then there's the point where you go to that next level and you just feel horrible and you're just, it's just not fun anymore. That's surfeiting. That's that idea that you have gone beyond drunkenness, 
the cares of this life. He says, take heed lest these things cause you to be unprepared for that which is to come. Take heed that you don't get so caught up in the things of this life that you're distracted from preparation. My uh, daughter, one of my daughters, I've got more than one, um, challenged me yesterday. She keeps telling me, Dad, we need to be passing out tracks. She's really urgent about telling people about Christ because Christ is coming. And I said, well, it's cold. <laughs> I said, you know, we'll, we'll pick up again with the, 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 the evangelism when, when it gets warm. She said, Dad, she said this. She said, Dad, what if Jesus comes in the winter? And I didn't have an answer for her, <laughs> except that it cut me to my heart. What if he does come in the winter? How many, how many people are not going to hear because we've taken some time off because it's cold? Taking time off to pursue other things. Now, certainly, this life has many cares, and we can't just sell everything, sit up on a hill, right? That's not what we're being called to do. But we are being called, as we talked about this morning in Sunday school, for those of you who are here, to hold this life loosely. To not allow the things of this world to overshadow, to overpower, to overcharge our hearts so that we lose sight of the priorities of the things to come. There is a day when Christ is going to call us home and we don't know when that is. And there is work to be done and we want to have our hearts ready our having done all we can for him in this life. So Jesus says, Watch ye therefore and pray always. Watch and pray. Be ever vigilant, daily correcting ourselves to ensure that our priorities are in line with Christ's priorities. And those that do, Jesus says, will escape these things which shall come to pass and stand before the Son of Man. And to us, on this night, at this time, the prophecies which will surely come to pass might be calling us to change a few things in our own lives. What is our life? It is but a vapor, James tells us, that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. For this little time that we have, whether the Lord were to come today or whether the Lord blesses us with long life, for the time that we have, what are we doing with it? Where do our priorities lie? It's kind of been the theme of the day, hasn't it? Where do our priorities lie? How strong is the world's hold on you? Are you distracted, hopelessly distracted by the things of this life so that you've taken your eye off of preparation for that which is to come? The parable of the fig tree and of the trees, all the trees, is a parable of preparation that as we see the day approaching, as we see the signs of the times, that we would be ready Israel's a nation again. They want to build their temple. They're itching to build their temple. Things are aligning. We see it. If you look at the confederacies of Ezekiel, things are aligning. Things are getting closer. Things that we could not have, that, that history, Christian, the church could not have imagined a hundred years ago have come to pass. It's getting closer. Are we living like it's getting closer? Hold the things in your life. Hold the things of this life loosely. Where's our heart today? How do things stand today? Where's our loyalty? Is it to the spiritual or is it to the material? 
The testimony of prophecy exhorts us to keep the spiritual always as our top priority. Where does your time go? Where does your money go? Where are your thoughts and your desires and your cravings and your, your, your wants? The testimony of prophecy exhorts us to place all of ourselves upon the spiritual. Second Peter chapter 3 speaks about the day when God will melt the earth with a fervent heat. All the material things, houses and cars and buildings and televisions and all of those things and on this earth, even the mountains and the trees, it's all going to burn, it's all going to melt, it's all going to be reset. And so Peter asks this question in 2 Peter 3 verse 11. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? What does it mean for you that all these things will surely be dissolved? What does it mean for the manner in which you live your life? What does it mean for how you treat others? What does it mean for where you go, what you do, what you think? Where do our priorities lie? We finish with verses 38 and 30, 37 and 38 to finish up this chapter. The Bible says, And in the daytime he was teaching in the temple, and at night he went out and abode in the mount that is called the Mount of Olives. And all the people came early in the morning to him in the temple for to hear him. Jesus' days were spent in the temple. Jesus' nights were spent on the Mount of Olives. We have only one direct record of Jesus' time in the Mount of Olives. We have in Matthew 24 the record that they asked him when he was on the Mount of Olives about the end of things. So we would presume he was sitting there when he was telling them this thing. So he, he used some of that time to speak with his disciples. But we also recognize that one night, that last night where Jesus spent his night in prayer. And what is it that Jesus kept asking his disciples to do on that final night as he was praying? Watch and pray. He would say, watch and pray. The same thing he exhorts us to do, exhorts them to do here. Watch and pray. Be ready. Be in communication with your God. Be looking for the signs. Be prepared. Have your loins girt. Be ready. Have your lamps lit. Be ready. Because he is coming again. And in the meantime, he's called us unto obedience. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.